What should have been an easy crime to solve is now, seven years on, still a cold case. And a case that's haunted the city of Midlothian, Texas, since 2016. It was 4.18am on April 18th, 2016, when 45-year-old Terry Beavers, known by her friends and family as Missy, pulled up outside the Creekside Church of Christ in Midlothian, Texas. She was a fitness instructor known in the local area for her gladiator boot camps. And for her, the 18th was just another routine class. She got all of her things out of the car and went inside to begin setting up for her students who would arrive at 5am. Except the class would never take place. Because a few minutes after she arrived, she would be murdered by someone already roaming the church, dressed head to toe in police SWAT uniform, carrying what looked like a sort of hammer, all caught on CCTV. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Missy was born on August 9th, 1970, in Graham, Texas, a teacher, a wife, and a mum. She'd married Brandon Beavers in 1998, and the couple had gone on to have three daughters, aged 8, 13, and 15, at the time of her murder. In 2014, she joined a company called Camp Gladiator, and became a certified personal trainer. Camp Gladiator was a well-known company in Texas, in fact it was all over the US but very, very prevalent in Texas, who would hold their boot camps in churches, parking lots or car parks, and football fields. Basically anywhere with space. For Missy, she'd always held her fitness boot camps at Midlothian's Creekside Church of Christ, only a 20-minute drive from her home. The night before her murder, she'd put a Facebook post out on her group page saying, If it's raining, we're still training. No excuses, you are gladiators. The weather forecast was looking like showers and the following morning a heavy thunderstorm had descended over the town. 
So instead of setting up for the class in the church car park, what would be a devastating Monday for Missy's loved ones? She decided that her 5am class would need to be held inside of the church. A great character trait of hers would actually be the trait that would lead to her death because a less dedicated instructor would probably have cancelled the session. But Missy cared about her students' fitness and had a strong work ethic and was always known to hold her classes come rain or shine. What she couldn't have known, though, was that there was a figure slowly walking through the halls of the church. And like I said at the start, they were fully kitted out in police tactical gear and holding what appeared to be some sort of hammer. Obviously, at that time of the morning, the church was empty, allowing the intruder to walk through the halls without care, opening and closing doors as if he or she was searching for someone or something. So it's very similar to what you would expect a SWAT team to be doing when they're inside a property, kind of opening doors, closing doors, checking, securing the scene, etc. Except there was no urgency in this intruder's stance or whatever you want to call it. They were very casually, without any rush, just walking down the halls. At one point, they're seen breaking open a door with the hammer. Had Missy's Facebook post given her killer the exact location and timescale needed to commit her murder? She posted a lot on social media about her upcoming boot camps, and unfortunately, her advertising made her movements easily trackable meaning police could be looking for a needle in a haystack. Now, the church didn't have CCTV outside. I think they did from my research, but it wasn't working or something like that. However, they did have motion-activated security cameras inside the building, and that's what captured the unknown person entering the church at 3.50am. Frustratingly, along with the SWAT gear they were wearing, they were also wearing a police tactical helmet, meaning their face wasn't visible, and they also had on gloves. 30 minutes later, they would cross paths with Missy and would brutally murder her. Incidentally, the murder wasn't captured on CCTV, but to be honest, that's probably a blessing. At 5am, Missy's students arrived at the church and discovered her body. They walked in, expecting to see Missy, testing her mic, getting the equipment situated, etc. Instead they found a battered and bloodied Missy with multiple puncture wounds to her head and chest and really oddly her body surrounded by broken glass. I just honestly can't imagine how devastating that must be for them. I mean that is early in the morning anyway and I don't know about you but I would be half asleep walking into that class but boy would you wake up quickly coming across that scene. Now, this was a small community, so police don't deal with murder cases regularly in Midlothian. In fact, there hadn't been a murder case for over seven years. And not only that, but they were just stumped on what the motive could possibly have been. Her students, her friends and her family said that she was literally loved by everyone. You couldn't help but love her. However, when they watched the footage of the killer, they figured, okay, We don't know the motive, but this can't be hard to solve. We've pretty much got the killer on camera. We're going to find the person, right? Yes, the helmet and the SWAT gear obscured the killer's face, but there were some physical clues which were definitely going to help. They had to. They just had to. Or so they thought. In certain portions of the footage, which you'll be able to watch on our Facebook group, 
the suspect appeared to have what was described as like a feminine sway or walk. And it also indicated that the suspect had a distinct walk, either from some type of injury, surgery or birth defect, which affected their right leg slash foot. At one point, the killer was seen using a wall to kind of keep them steady. It also indicated that the killer was more on the heavier side and between five foot two and five foot seven. So could it be female? I mean, to me, those details definitely kind of sound like it. Police search the crime scene and find evidence of forced entry into the building. So obviously where that alleged killer has kind of gotten in. And a couple of rooms also have been smashed, as I said earlier. So maybe it was a burglary gone wrong. Except nothing was taken, leading police to believe that the killer instead staged the scene to look like a robbery to hide their actual intention. Police are obviously stumped as to who possibly could want to harm her, but as always, prime suspect number one is the spouse. So they begin looking into Brandon, who was allegedly on a fishing trip in Mississippi, just under 600 miles away. So they check and confirm that his alibi is solid. Next, they move on to Missy's phone records, and that does throw up some interesting things. Records from March 1st to April 18th revealed that shortly before her murder, Missy had been having financial and marital struggles, as well as intimate slash personal relationships outside of the marriage. There were messages between Missy and Brandon referring to extramarital affairs, and police also found evidence that Missy had been getting intimate and flirtatious messages over LinkedIn, some of which had been deleted and sadly couldn't be recovered. The police were able to contact a person of interest who admitted that they had been communicating with Missy over LinkedIn, beginning in January and up to the time of the death, in messages that started off innocent but ultimately turned flirtatious and overly familiar, we could say. However, they were cleared of being anywhere near the church that morning. One of Missy's friends, however, said to police that she believed the killer had also communicated with Missy via LinkedIn. Three days before her murder, Missy had shown her friend a message from an unknown man that had made her super uncomfortable. Missy's friend said that her and Missy had agreed that the message was creepy and strange. But Missy obviously didn't feel that the message was an imminent threat because the morning of her death, she left her licensed firearm inside of the car. Which, if you're feeling a bit nervy, it's early in the morning, it's dark, you're going to take that firearm with you if that's the way you're so inclined. So, Brandon has been cleared. It's not going to be the kids, let's be honest. So, was there anyone else in the family the cops should be looking at? Yes, Missy's father-in-law, Randy. Four days after the murder, an owner of a dry cleaners called police with reports that a man had brought in a woman's blood-soaked shirt. He told an employee that the blood had come from a dog, explaining that he'd broken up a dog fight and carried the one that was injured and bleeding into the vets. The other thing interesting about Randy was that he walked with a limp. Alarm bells are ringing, guys. So police obviously go get the shirt from the dry cleaners and get it forensically analysed and bring Randy in for questioning. He tells them, though, that he'd been in California with his wife at the time of the murder. OK, so they also live in Texas, but he and his wife were in California and that checked out. Along with that, his daughter also corroborated his story about the dogfight. 
Eventually, an analysis of the shirt comes back and confirms that the blood on the shirt was from a dog. So Randy's cleared. Now what? A few weeks pass and a fresh lead emerges. A few hours before Missy's murder, a car was captured on security cameras driving slowly around the car park of a sporting goods store near the church. The car spent six minutes in the car park and most of that time with its lights off. Not suspicious at all, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be driving around at 3am in the morning with my lights off and cruising around closed shops. Like, what is the point of that? So police decide to actually release the footage of the car to the public and they describe the car as being a 2010 to 2012 Nissan Altima or similar and they ask the public if there's any information about its owner to please come forward. But no one does come forward with any information. They really are getting nowhere fast. So eventually they reach out to the FBI, who consult a forensic podiatrist to examine the security footage to see if an analysis of the killer's walk or gait could help them identify the gender at least. I mean, that's going to narrow something down, right? The podiatrist checks it out and comes back saying that it's kind of inconclusive, but they're leaning more towards that the unusual gait was due to the weight of the gear. So basically, the investigators are again back to square one. It's now late 2019, so well over a year since Missy was murdered and the case is growing colder. Police decide to go through the tip line once again in case they missed anything and they actually realise that there's a tip that has come through quite a few times that was never followed up. It involves a former tactical police officer by the name of Bobby Wayne Henry. He'd been suspended from the police due to an aggravated sexual assault back in 1996. So police go talk to him and Bobby admits that yes, he still owns his riot gear, but says that it doesn't fit him anymore. Now, interestingly, he also attends mass at Creekside Church of Christ. So he knew the layout well. And not only that, but he walks with a limp. And there's another and he owns a car that resembled a different vehicle that investigators were looking at. So not the Nissan, but a dark SUV that was thought to have been seen leaving the church on the morning of the murder. I mean, this has got to be it, surely. Okay, the police have got to have their man. Except, yes, except there's a problem. Bobby is six foot one way too tall to be the person in the security footage. Even if we go to the higher end of the height that they're kind of estimating based on the footage, that would be five foot seven, five foot eight. So six foot one is just out of the picture. And not only that, but his alibi checked out as well. So he was cleared. I mean, this is literally so frustrating. I keep feeling we're close and then bam, there's a spanner in the works, putting the case right back to square one. As you can imagine, I mean, obviously time is passing, the police are getting no closer, and unease is really rippling through the city of Midlothian, as essentially Mrs. Killer is still wandering the streets, completely free as a bird. And seven years later, still is. What this cold case has led, though, is to internet sleuths or armchair detectives combing the internet for clues to try and help find Mrs. Murderer except some of them really have gone too far in their search. And this is actually what I want to talk about today. Obviously, I have this podcast and a huge interest in true crime, as do you, my loyal listeners and subscribers. And there is literally nothing wrong with that. Personally, for me, it's twofold. 
One, to keep the victim's name and memory alive. Someone robbed them of a future and a future that we will never know what they could have achieved in. So the least that we can do for the families left behind is to know their names so that the killer hasn't completely won. And secondly, I think a lot of the time it can actually help us be a lot less naive or more aware of potential dangers, etc. And knowledge is power. And yes, although most murders we discuss are completely unavoidable, there are still others where we can take lessons or knowledge away on how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. But as true crime junkies, it is very easy for us to become armchair detectives. And nine times out of ten, it's harmless but sometimes it causes more harm than good. Christian McFate wrote for the Dallas Observer about how internet sleuths had muddied the waters and wrecked reputations from their interference in Missy's case. And in the UK, we saw a little of this in the Nicola Bully case. There was so many theories swirling around on TikTok and it was actually causing more problems than help for police. Don't get me wrong, I don't disagree with people airing their opinions or even theories online. And there's actually been cold cases solved thanks to people not letting it drop. But we have to be mindful that the people being accused are real people with lives. So yes, have your own thoughts and opinions and theories on a case. But honestly, please don't go out and harass or dox. So these internet sleuths have created Facebook groups dedicated to solving Missy's murder. Ones like Case Crackers, Who Killed Missy Beavers, Justice for Missy Beavers, Let's Catch Missy Beavers Killer, Missy Beavers Unfiltered and Uncensored. And these groups memberships range from 50 people to well over a thousand non-police who are dissecting the case nearly every day. And their theories are ranging from love triangles gone awry a jealous husband with an enraged father, a gas station attendant with a checkered past. And members of these groups have analysed search warrants and photos of the killer in that makeshift tactical gear. Some dissected the outdoor store surveillance video, pointing out that the driver's seat was actually pushed too far back for the killer, and that the Nissan may have been flashing its headlights at someone else, so like an accomplice. But police haven't ever mentioned that there was a possibility of an accomplice. Others have gone as far as running background checks and trolling social media sites of friends and family and approaching Missy's family and friends for information. They use acronyms to discuss and debate guilt or innocence as if literally they're playing a game of Cluedo and that these aren't real people. Obviously, I am well aware that it would be hypocritical of me to be against these kind of groups. But opinions and unsubstantiated theories can be dangerous. Their theories and conversations have crossed out of that social media realm and into the real world, wreaking havoc on so many people's lives and in some instances wasting man hours as police track down false leads. Midlothian Assistant Police Chief Kevin Johnson told The Observer they need to remember that these are people with families. Just because we're following up on a tip and talking with someone doesn't mean they're guilty. Basically, any time the police speak or have spoken to someone, that person became a huge target for these Facebook groups. So we talked about Randy, okay, Missy's father-in-law, being questioned over the bloody shirt, etc. And all the evidence came back clearing him. But that didn't stop armchair detectives from sharing a photo of Randy posing at a golf course, side by side with an image of the killer taken from the surveillance footage strolling through the halls of the church. 
captioned with things like, they're both about the same height, same stocky build, and pointing out that Randy's right leg and foot appeared to have an outward stance. One comment under the post read, In the father-in-law's Facebook posts, he likes to show his legs and feet. There's a scar on his right leg which would be indicative of previous surgery, causing the abnormal gait, similar to the killer's. Now, believe me, I do not for one second think that the police are perfect. The level of corruption and disingenuity is rife all over the world amongst law enforcement. For example, I don't know if you guys recently have heard or seen the footage of the Seattle police officer, Daniel Orderer, who is currently under investigation after he was caught on his body cam video joking about a young woman who literally minutes before had been hit by his colleague's vehicle and died on impact. And he's not just a regular police officer either. He's the vice president of the city's police union. His colleague struck a 23-year-old woman as she was crossing the street and he was doing 74 miles an hour through the intersection because he was responding to a call about a suspected overdose. Her body was thrown over 100 feet in the air. As with any incident like this, a drug recognition officer is dispatched to make sure that the officer involved in the scene wasn't under the influence. Which, just a little side note, okay, alongside being vice president of the union, which was obviously Daniel's job, let's not even get into the conflict of interest of those two positions. So on one hand, he is president of the union, or vice president of the police union, so he's there to protect police officers and not allow internal affairs to do anything kind of, you know, untoward. But then on the other side, he's the one that goes and checks that they haven't done anything wrong. I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel like those are two very conflicting positions. So he goes and carries out the analysis, finishes up, gets back into his car and calls Mike Solon the president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild. And this is what he says. I think she went up on the hood, hit the windshield. Then when he hit the brakes, flew off the car. But she is dead. <laughs> it does not seem like there's a criminal investigation going on. No, it's a regular person. Yeah, just write a check. Just... Yeah, $11,000. She was 26 anyway. She had limited value. I don't have any words at all for that audio. I, I mean, he has come out and tried to defend it, but I don't know how you can defend that. There's, it's just damage control at that point. So yes, the police aren't perfect, but it's what we've got. And we have to have a certain level of trust that they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's. So back to the armchair detectives in Missy's case. The theories and accusations were getting so out of hand that Missy's sister-in-law, Christy Stout, wrote a post in one of those Facebook groups in relation to what was being said about Randy. She said, quote, All you Facebook detectives out there, I'm sure haven't checked with American Airlines to verify they were on a plane headed there. Nor did any of you check with the phone companies to see that Randy and his wife phones were actually pinging in the San Diego area at the time of the murder. After all, that's why we have the FBI and law enforcement who confirmed that already, because armchair detectives just don't have that ability. Not only that, but the FBI drove out to Biloxi, Mississippi to confirm with others on the fishing trip that Brandon was in fact there at the time of the murder, as well as verified pings from cell phone towers that he was there. For those of you who say Brandon hired someone to do this, Again, 
The FBI has thoroughly watched and studied his accounts and have seen no large money being moved around. Brandon has been bugged by the FBI, grilled like you would never fathom, and his story has never changed. If I could sit you all down in a room with a marker board and show you what we've learned about this case and how much work slash people have been involved, I would. End quote. The Dallas Observer also recounted that it wasn't just Missy's family who were the victims of online trolling. One of her co-workers at Camp Gladiator found himself part of the jealous wife theory. Internetters thought that he was involved because his wife had a short, heavy build and a broken foot. He wrote on his Facebook that one of these armchair detectives had actually come to his house. He wrote, It's trash day. When my wife left the house to take the kids to school, my neighbour saw a person get out of their parked car and take our bags of trash, put it in their car and drive off. I mean, guys, come on. April Sandoval was another target of these groups. She was the theory that I spoke about earlier of the gas station attendant with a chequered pass. She worked at a gas station down the road from the church and she'd attended a few Camp Gladiator classes, which she would never have done except she entered a draw for a free Camp Gladiator exercise session when she was at a county barbecue. Missy called, told her that she'd won, and encouraged her to attend. Now, she'd struggled to lose weight after her youngest son was born, we all know how that is, right, and thought, why not? It's not going to cost me anything, let's try it out. But she attended only four sessions out of the five-week exercise course, The classes, as we know, were held early morning, and at this time they were being held in the car park of Navarro College. She quit the sessions because her mother could no longer watch her kids. However, she had done enough sessions that she'd posed with Missy and the rest of the Camp Gladiator crew for a photo that April had uploaded to Facebook. And it was this picture that led social media sleuths to dig deeper into her life after Missy's death. They pegged her as the possible killer. They found her among Missy's Facebook friends list and then saw the Camp Gladiator photo and the photo of her bruised and swollen left foot that she'd injured on the job a few months earlier. They also discussed in the Facebook group her stint in jail for writing a bad check and the military career that she'd aborted and her Pinterest page. Now, why her Pinterest page? because she'd saved pins relating to the three percenters. I'd never heard of the three percenters. Obviously, I'm from the UK, so certain political things just don't make it over here. And the three percenters are a self-described patriot movement that pledges resistance against the federal government to protect the constitution. So because of her political alignment, they just felt that she was even more so guilty. Again, I don't even pretend to understand what a lot of these kind of political movements are about, but there you go. If you do, great. (laughs) The armchair sleuths then claimed that April got insurance on a Nissan Altima similar make and model to the one in the surveillance video a couple of hours before Missy's murder. They even took pictures of the Altima parked in front of April's home and at the preschool on her son's graduation day. April tried to explain that it was her mum's car and a 2013 model, so not the same model as the police had released. And also that she'd never driven it in her life. The trolling got so bad that April went to the Midlothian police for help, but instead she actually got interrogated. 
a police officer took her into an interview room and told her that he had gotten so many phone calls and messages about her that he really had no choice but to investigate. She met with the detective in May of 2016 with her sick child in tow because she had no one to watch him. Plus, she was three months pregnant with her daughter. She answered the detective's questions about her Pinterest and her Facebook accounts, her current pregnancy, her former fiancé, her plans to actually adopt out her unborn daughter to a family who could care for her, her attendance at the Camp Gladiator classes and her living situation. The detective even asked her to walk back and forth and measured her height before she was allowed to leave the police station. Now, if you're innocent, that is going to be so violating when you really have got nothing to do with this. You went to the police for help, but you end up having to be investigated because of a bunch of people on the internet. A month later, Midlothian police officer Mark Holton sent an email to a particularly aggressive member of one of these Facebook groups saying, quote, I can tell you the picture of the suspect's eyes is not anything law enforcement have put out there. The origin is unknown and it's just something put out there by someone who thought it would be funny. There is no photograph we have that shows the eyes of the suspect, the colour or the gender. So again, the information you sent me is of no value to this investigation. And I would also suggest you quit targeting April Sandoval. We have talked to her and cleared her. Now, this person actually claims that she did listen to the police after she got that message. Her post after the fact, though, to me, isn't really suggesting that. She wrote, I want to again be very clear that MPD, which is Midlothian Police Department, told me that they brought her in, so her is April, and questioned her and cleared her. Since that time, I have not been digging into it like this. This was all before the date when they were seeking help from the public. Disclaimer, I am not in any way saying that this person has anything to do with this case at all, whatsoever. But you are free to draw your own conclusions. Then she listed more than a dozen signs of possible motives, including one that April looked very disturbed and sad and was notably lonely. Guys, it is not a crime to look sad and lonely, okay? So, like I said, I don't think that Facebook post really indicated that she'd listened to the police officer. Assistant Police Chief Kevin Johnson, after Missy's death, found himself speaking to reporters more than he ever had in any other previous case that he had conducted. And he wasn't naive to the fact that social media could wreak havoc in their cases. He just hadn't seen it to this extent. He recalled a case where he worked on years back where a car had caught fire with the driver still inside. And by the time police and emergency responders appeared on scene, word of the accident had already spread on social media. Someone had recognised the photo of the vehicle and contacted the owner's family. Kevin said that he then received a phone call from the victim's mother who asked if her son was dead. They hadn't even had a chance to identify the victim at this point. Disturbingly, Missy's kids weren't even left alone. Her daughter Hannah spoke to Inside Edition and said, I've had people on Facebook message me and say, your dad did this, your dad killed your mum. But my dad loved my mum and I know that 100%. 
Again, treading a fine line, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm just going to be letting you know what's been reported on. Most true crimers know that you're more likely to be killed by someone you know than a random stranger, which is why the first to be questioned are always those closest to a victim. And even though Brandon Beaver's alibi has more or less been confirmed with plane tickets and a car rental receipt showing that he was in Mississippi, as well as talking to his friends, some suggest that he might have hired someone to kill his wife. I mentioned earlier that there were financial and infidelity troubles in the Beaver's marriage, so some have speculated that Brandon might have been looking for a way out. Now, this also is the kicker. He has publicly stated that he is no longer interested in finding his wife's killer, which has done nothing but just heighten suspicions that he might have been involved. The Daily Mail quoted Brandon as saying, The children see and hear the daily anxiety I have in finding this person, and I think they are tired of the mentality that this puts our day-to-day life in. They want normalcy and happiness. I want justice, but I too fear the reality of bringing this case or person to trial and the emotional uncertainty that may go with it. Now, I totally understand where he's coming from. I'm a mum, my kids' welfare comes first, and that is what he's trying to do, supposedly, in what he's saying. He's trying to put his kids' welfare first. They're going to be forever emotionally scarred by their mum's brutal killing without having to live a life permanently focused on finding the killer. But on the same token, it's not a great look, basically saying, let's just let sleeping dogs lie. For a start, catching this killer could stop someone else from meeting the same fate. What's to say that the killer doesn't get cocky thinking, well, I got away with murder once, let me do it again and find out. Sadly, bottom line, all while this case is unsolved, Brandon will likely have to live the rest of his life with some sort of shadow over his head from other people. Police have said that despite it being seven years, they haven't actually formally identified Missy's case as a cold case. The reward for help in catching her killer stands at $150,000. As I said in the intro, you'd expect a crime with the killer on surveillance footage, and especially with such an unusual walk, stance, gait, whatever we want to call it, to not be solved. So the fact that it hasn't keeps this crime top of true crime podcasts and online forums. Now, I personally don't think it was a random attack. Nothing was stolen, and why would you be roaming around a church where, let's be honest, there's really not much to steal in the early hours of the morning, like I said. And this wasn't an old church with artefacts and portraits and possibly collection boxes or whatever, and stained glass windows. It was a modern, regular building type church. And again, the pictures will be in our Facebook group. They knew Missy would be there as she posted her class times and locations. But the million dollar question that no one can answer is who would target her and want her dead? Her husband? A disgruntled lover? Maybe. But either way, her family deserve justice. Missy deserves justice. So all that being said about armchair detectives, if you do have some credible information, the information on who to contact is in this week's case description. And like I often say, someone knows something. Thanks for listening. To see photos and video footage of today's case, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe.